0: welcome to episode one of the elton college podcast where we connect you the listener with staff students and guests for each of these episodes i'm so pleased you're here because in this episode we have lbc radio host nick ferrari who's also an oe so you're about to hear whether he always wanted to go into journalism what life was like in the 1970s at school and we also hear something about nick roger moore and the movie octopussy along with nick we also have two students alex and amrit They're both going to keep our guest unusually on the other side of the microphone as they ask him various questions. I'm dying to know what he's going to say, so let's get into this episode right now with Arabella leading us as we talk to LBC radio host Nick Ferrari.
1: So hello, we are here with old Tamium and LBC radio host Nick Ferrari to talk about his life as a student here at Elton College and also his journey into the world of tabloid press and journalism. So Nick, I think you joined Eltham College in 1970 at the age of 11 and you left in 1977 to go into a career in journalism. So starting in print journalism at the Sunday Mirror and The Sun, you then moved later into broadcasting. Now today, your morning show on LBC radio has 1.5 million weekly listeners. I mean, it's a huge amount. And he also makes regular appearances on other current affairs, radio and TV programmes. And Nick also writes a weekly column for the Sunday Express. So Nick, thank you for joining us today. So let's just begin with, how did you decide to pass up the chance to go to university after leaving Eltham College? Why did you choose the particular route to go into journalism?
2: Well, to put it simply, I was too thick, I think is probably the answer. I mean, I did have a place at one of the great schools of, uh, of uh, learning. I think it was either Reading or Bournemouth. But I decided to, what was take a gap year, um, but I didn't have the money to go off travelling around Cambodia or Vietnam. I decided to go and be a local paper reporter in Woolwich because both my, well, my father had been a journalist and my mother had trained as a journalist because... Um, she, uh, she took over and ran the business and both my brothers were journalists as well. So I got into that and I suddenly find, found that for that year, it was enormous fun to be paid £39 a week, don't get too excited, £39 a week to run around Woolwich um, covering stories and places like Plumstead and even indeed Mottingham and Elton for that matter. So I never really went back and I got really jolly lucky. I was able to start doing day shifts, as they're called, on the Sunday Mirror. And I remember now... That was £64 for a day's work on the Sunday Mirror in 1978 or whatever it was. So I went into a career. So um, my mother was furious because she decided that I must, must go to university. My father just said, well, he's got to do it. You know, let the lad do what the lad wants to do. And um, uh, university's loss was LBC's gain, I suppose.
1: I must say, I love the fact that your mother was cross about something that she also was involved with as well. Well, I'm going to hand over to Alex now, who I think has got a few questions for you.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we're just going to take, a, I guess, a step back and ask, why did you attend Eltham?
2: How did you find your time here? What were your fondest memories? One of the proudest moments in my parents' life, and I mean this, was that I got to Elton College. So I had two elder brothers, one of whom was eleven years older than me. He went to St. Olav's grammar. And then my next brother up called Simon, he came to Elton College. And he and because he was nine years old, obviously they had a sense. They he absolutely loved this school. More, I have to say more than I did. I loved I, I enjoyed this school, but Simon my brother was absolutely made for this school. He, I mean, he stayed in touch with all the teachers. Prior, he had a, an unfortunate uh, road accident, and and so he died a little early. But he he was really made for Eltham College. So my parents hoped and hoped and hoped that I would get uh, to Eltham. I sat three exams when at the age of ten, or whenever you do that. I was I passed for St Dunstan's in Catford. I was on the reserve list for a school called Seven Oaks because by this time we lived a little bit down in Kent. And when I got the letter that I had passed, College, I think my mother cried with relief because she thought, at least he'll get a half-decent education. He might get some work. So that's it. And I came, I was at a prep school called Merton Court. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. My brother was equally proud that I got here. He was a really... What's the word? He was a very popular student. The teachers really took to him. So I had all the opportunities, and I managed to blow it. You know, I, I pretty much turned every teacher against me within two or three years. Funnily enough, we've got this new... I must tell you this, and then I'll hand it back because I'm talking too much. But we might be doing this new show which is talked about various school reports. Okay, And I might be doing it with Rachel Johnson, who is the sister of... So we had to dig up old school reports. It's so funny that, that Andrew has arranged this because I, I managed to find an old school report... And my rugby teacher, who was Mr. Linscott, Mr. Linscott, Mr. John Linscott, said of rugby, <laughs> "If only he played with as much skill as enthusiasm." And that's pretty much my whole school career summed up. Did you end up keeping in
0: touch then with any of your?
2: teachers from Eltham, or friends on that matter. Do you know, that's a very good question, and I'm so embarrassed. Not only have I not kept up with any of the teachers, I don't know where any of my school... I honestly don't know where any of them are. Some of them might have gone to jail. No, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. There was one chap I was very friendly with, uh, a lad called Nicholas Hannon, who did really... I think he went... It's either Oxford. It's, I'm going to say Oxford. He definitely went to one of them. You know, he, he, he tried to get to Reading, but he just couldn't get in. Uh, so he, I think he went to Oxford and then he went to live down in New Zealand and I lost contact with him. And we did stay in touch with him. But the others um, I, and I once got contacted. And if he's reading this, my apologies. His last name was Mayhew. His first name was Christopher. And he got in contact with me, the radio station. And unbelievably, he'd become a senior officer in the Royal Navy. So how he ever managed that, the idea that you would even give him, I don't know, a minibus, let alone a battleship, is quite extraordinary. But if he's reading this, do try and get in touch again and we'll make it happen.
1: Oh, good, good to hear, good
3: to hear. So during school, were your journalistic instincts honed in on in any sort of way? For example, like a school newspaper?
2: No, they weren't. And um, my journalistic background probably led to one of the most surprising incidents Probably Melton College's history, and it involves My Bedroom and Miss World, which there used to be a beauty competition many, many years ago. They don't do it anymore because it's wholly inappropriate. Don't worry, the story is absolutely fine. Everyone can listen. But years and years ago, unbelievably, young women would parade from different countries in national dress, and and then everybody would vote for the. I mean, this is a different time, okay, but it was a massive television show. And my dad was running the Daily Mirror, and the, the woman who won was British. I remember her name to this day, Helen Morgan. And she suddenly found out that Miss Morgan, this is 1974 or something like that. Helen Morgan was an unmarried mother. Now you have to go back, we are going back 30 something years. This is the biggest story you can imagine. And my father wanted to get the story and the Daily Express wanted it and my dad wanted it for the mirror. So he got a journalist, what's called get her story, pay her some money. And then he had to hide her somewhere. And we lived in this beautiful mill house in a village in Kent, a place called Farningham. And I went down there and I used to get a lift up very kindly with the dad of another pupil. Actually, I came home from school and I said, um, my mum said, you can't go to your bedroom. Why not? Miss Wells, sleeping in your bed. Oh, yeah, right. No, no, truly, Miss Wells. Your dad's bought her up for the Daily Mirror, and there are two reporters in the front room. They're writing a story, and I knew one of them. I said, oh, hi, hi, hi. So it's a sort of strange. Then the Daily Express found out, and it had quite a long drive, the house I lived at, so they then put nailed planks across the drive and tied the gate up with wire. So if the Daily Mirror tried to get Miss World out, they'd be all concerned. So, of course, when I go out the next morning, yet again, I arrive late here at Elton College because I've had trouble climbing over the fence. So I'm sent to see the David Headmaster, whose name was, I think, Mr Higgins at that time. Is that sounds about right. Yeah, George Higgins. And I was always late, for him. And so he said, what excuses are this time? Well, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, sir. Miss World is asleep in my bed. <laughs> And if you don't believe me, sir, perhaps you'd like to ring my mum and she'll authenticate it. So that's the closest I ever got to journalism in Elton College. Um,
0: so I guess, did that mean that you always wanted to go into journalism? <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: well, there's a joke there, but I won't do that. Look, I wanted to be a vet. Okay. And I studied, well, I tried to study biology here, and I couldn't even spell it, let alone study. And I, I think I think the teacher's name was Mr. Taylor, Martin Taylor. Okay, don't, he, I'm sure he was a brilliant teacher, but I just couldn't do it. So I couldn't, obviously, I couldn't be of it. I couldn't even spell the bloody thing. So I sort of fell back into the family business. My late father ran what's called a, a press agency. So you keep reporters in a certain part of the country. So if a story broke in Kent... All the newspapers ring rang my dad's agency and he would send reporters out to Chatham or Dover or I mean he, God, they'd be busy at the moment with the issues at Dover or Faversham. So I would be I would come home from school and what we call read copy to newspapers. So my two brothers would be doing it as well. So there'd be a pile of stories. You didn't have computers, you didn't have laptops, you had phones and notebooks. And I would just read a story. So I'd get in and my mum would have, Miss <laughs> Wells not here today. And so there's a bowl of cornflakes and then read those stories to the Daily Express. So I would just read stories. And then my brother would be doing the Daily Mirror and my other brother would be doing the Mail or something. And, and, and then I thought, well, I, I, I can sort of write stories. I was Fairly decent, fairly decent at English. So I gave that a go. So no, I'd love to say that I founded a a student newspaper here and it went on to win awards. But no, basically I was arriving late and just trying to dodge things most of the time.
3: Once you had become a news reporter at the Daily Mirror, what was a memory that stands out to you?
2: Oh, I'll tell you what it was. Uh, And actually, just so it was the Sunday Mirror, but don't worry, they're the same stuff. I'll tell you what it was. I'll tell you what it was. Hopefully, I know I'm very old. Hopefully we've all heard of John Lennon. Okay, and John Lennon was fatally shot in America. And I just started. I just started as a staff reporter, so I was no longer doing like freelance. They'd actually given me a contract. Boom, I'm in. And John Lennon was shot, and reporters are sent everywhere, and I was sent to a very sleepy Sussex village called Peasmarsh, which is down by Rye, where Mr. McC- uh, Paul McCartney had a massive uh, country estate. He might still have it, for all I know. And it was. It was either. Oh my God! It was about this time of the year. I think it was November or December. Yeah, it was. It was was brutally cold. Brutally cold. And I went down, and all everybody was there. Everybody. The Mail was in one car. The Mirror, the Sunday Mirror, the News were all in these cars, waiting, hoping to get Paul McCartney's interview. And I fell asleep in the car. I mean, there's no, this is no great collection of journalism or anything like that. Everybody goes off to their hotel. I fall fast asleep in the car, probably because I'd had a long day. I've no idea. So when I wake up at about six in the morning, it's one of those days, you know, there's all the mist is coming down like that. I swear, this is my breakthrough, um, Amrit. I see this Mercedes estate car, which were quite rare in those days. This Mercedes estate has coming at the driver. I think, oh, my God, it can't possibly Paul McCartney oh my god so I go racing out of my mini metro fortunately he had a gate that he had to open manually so his then wife Linda sadly died she says we just leave him alone will you just leave him alone and I said yeah but could I just and amazingly amazingly he said do you know what I'm just going to talk to this young lad for a couple of minutes and he spoke to me for a couple of minutes and that actually because it was the front page suddenly people said my god this guy you know can get stories no he can't he fell asleep in the car it's as simple as that. i just woke up at the right moment there's nothing more than that we've become very famous now for presenting the
0: breakfast program on lbc uh, for over 20 years it's remarkable can you tell us some of the most memorable interviews you've you've done i mean you've interviewed some pretty big names like boris johnson yeah. diane abbott i mean the list kind yeah. of goes on so yeah. I love the
2: fact that you've done it. This is a great line, Alex. You've done it for 20 years, which is quite remarkable. What, what have you heard? <laughs> Do you dislike it that much? The highlights, I'm so lucky. Do you know what the highlights are? Honestly, I mean, obviously I'm lucky I've interviewed Boris Johnson I've interviewed. I was going to say all the Prime Ministers. We, we changed them. I mean, there's only two more to Christmas. Two more two more Prime Ministers will be at Christmas with a bit of luck. So I've done Brown and Blair and May and everyone, which is great. Do you know what? And and, and then there's obviously there's the moments like Diane Abbott, which was extraordinary, and before her, Natalie Bennett, who was a leader of the Green Party, and she sort of didn't really hold up to... And I'm, and again, it's just... I, mean, I didn't even want to do the Diane Abbott interview. The producer forced me to do it. I refused to look at the sheet until the last minute. And then when I did and asked her one question, it was like she was in a boxing ring punching herself. I just watched on. This is extraordinary. What are you doing? But actually, the most enjoyment comes from talking... Honestly, comes from talking to the listeners. And the stories they tell you sometimes really... Very, very quickly, I remember we did something about why we must remember uh, International Holocaust Day. And I took this call from a very heavily, heavily accented elderly woman in North London. Her name I think was Rachel. And she said, it's very important we remember Holocaust Day. It's very, it's very important for you. Why is that? Well, because I was I was part of it. What happened to you? I was a teenage girl in Auschwitz. Can you imagine what I went through? And I, oh, my God. So we just talk a little bit of that story. And I said what do your family say when you tell them? She said, do you know, I've never told them everything. I've not told them everything I've told you. I said, why not? And she said, I just trust you. I know you're an honest person. To get that level is quite extraordinary. So it's an utter privilege to do what I do.
3: Well, talking about interacting with your listeners. So you've always expressed delight when callers to your show admit they've deserted Radio 4's Today programme to listen to you. And a lot of our readers and listeners are probably Today programme stalwarts. So how is your programme different? And why do you think listeners should switch over to you?
2: I once appeared in an episode of Extras with Ricky Gervais, which you might vaguely have heard of, which was an absolute privilege. And I, obviously, I met him and he said, I didn't I knew who I'd heard of you, but I didn't listen to your show. But my producer said, I've got to involve you. And he said, I listened to you. He said, it is quite incredible. Some of the callers, because I don't know what they're going to say. But some of the humour, sometimes unintentional, is quite incredible. Last week, we were talking about the migrant crisis. I can't remember his name. Let's say Derek from Wilsdon phoned up. He said, I've got the solution. Oh, thank God. It's it's defied governments and prime ministers and home secretaries and Emmanuel Macron and everybody else. He said, no, I've got it. I've got it. We'll flood the channel with great white sharks. And and, and this was his solution. That afternoon, I walked through Marks and Spencer's in, I think, Bromley, but it doesn't matter where. And somebody just came up, didn't even say who they were. Great white (laughs) sharks. And just walked up. So what you get, hopefully, is obviously I'm going to tell you all the stories you need to know. Okay, so you'll get to school. You'll get to your place of work. You'll get home if you have put in a night shift. You'll know everything you need to know about the proceeding. But what I would say is it moves a little quicker than today. And there's that extraordinary human involvement. And I think that's probably what we bring, hopefully what we bring to it. That's really interesting. I mean, you still like the rustle of newspapers then on your
0: TV and radio shows. (laughs) And I guess that kind of leads me on to ask, do you think there's a a future for print journalism, especially as someone who's done some kind of journalist work experience in the past where everything just became digital? It'd be really interesting to just hear your thoughts on
2: whether you think there's a future bit of a critic, young Alex here. <laughs> I know sometimes you can hear the newspapers rustle. I'm not going to apologize. It's a lie. It's a happening event. I mean, sometimes we start the show. And honestly, we've only got the first half hour filled. And that, that, that's true. So we, we are doing it on the day, probably in a way that the Today newspaper doesn't. Have newspapers got a future? Um, oh, God, I hope so. Because um, between me and my family, we've worked on quite a few of them. I think the smart ones are getting into online as much as they can. You've got to find out how you can make money online. I sense the Daily Mail is probably quite close to that. Apparently, the Daily Mirror is doing quite well, and I wish them really, really well. Can we sustain the... I'm being like a politician now, asking the question. Do I think we'll sustain... I sadly think possibly... God, when you're my... That must seem so far distant. But when you're both leaving Oxford or Cambridge or Reading, if you do really well, will we still... Yeah, we'll probably just about get there. But when you start bringing your children to Eltham College... I doubt that they're going to be as many but there will always be newspapers and i will say this about newspapers and having very fortunate i've worked in three continents i've worked in sydney and new york and obviously here in london the one thing in media british newspapers are head and shoulders the best in the world take it from me they are the best the journalists are made to work harder the editors are the best so i hope they can there will always be enough to keep a couple of papers going we'll probably have to move into more online offerings i would have thought
3: Okay, so you hosted the Hustings last August between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss at the Wembley Arena. How hard is it to be an impartial host on occasions such as this?
2: That's a good question. Actually, not that difficult, because it's quite a high pressure event. Obviously, you want to go well for your listeners. You wanted to go well for the party as well, whether it had been Labour or Lib Dem or Conservatives. And you wanted to go well for like the two and a half thousand people who've paid not a lot of money, but they've paid, I think, 15 quid or whatever, don't quote me, to get in there. So honestly, I had, I didn't mind which which candidate won. What you're, in those situations, you're genuinely trying to be the person, be trying to get something out of the candidate that the other people haven't got, or trying to hold them to account, and not allowing them to blather on too much. So yeah, there was pressure. At times, I thought Rishi Sunak actually performed very, very well, candidly, and I'm not a member of the Conservative Party, candidly, and I did the first one at Leeds, so I sort of bookended it. So I did the first one at Leeds and the last one in Wembley. If I'd had a vote, candidly, I probably would have gone for Mr. Sunak, but where Liz Truss was very clever, she had the policies that really engaged the room. So the biggest cheers, whether in Leeds or in Wembley, probably came from her, but the sound of policies probably came from the person who we've got this week.
0: That makes politics sound like a game all about trying to get the people's favour, really. (laughs) When we looked up your Wikipedia entry, It said that you are a conservative British radio host. So I guess I want to ask, is that fair? And what do you take
2: conservative to mean in this context? No, it's absolutely fair. Um, And I did have conversations with uh, David Cameron about possibly becoming the conservative candidate to be the mayor of London. This was many years ago when LBC was nothing like uh, where it is now in the state. And I didn't have as many listeners and it was a good idea it seemed an idea until someone called Boris Johnson entered the fray and then i realized there was only ever going to be one winner well i will tell you this story very very briefly which you'll you'll tell your parents and they'll explain it to you when johnson came away and wanted to be an mp again he came and did a phone in with me and when the red light goes off that means he's having a private conversation and he said, look, I'm gonna be an MP, and David Cameron is leaning on me, you know, I've got to put forward some candidates who was to be London mayor. You know, you've got to do it. You should do it. You'd be, my dear fellow, my dear, dear fellow. Come on, come on, let's, get there. let's do it, come on. So I said, well, it's, it's very, very kind of you, but can I just tell you something, Boris? Sadly, my marriage is going away, and I don't need the full glare of Her Majesty's press at the moment, you know, as I'm sort of running around town. And I swear, he looked at me and he said, well, compared to me, you are but a (laughs) schoolboy. That was Boris.
1: Oh my goodness, what a reaction.
3: So talking about tactics and strategies and games there, uh, why do you support Leicester City and how do you rate their chances this season?
2: (laughs) These two young people have done great research. Uh, Very simply, although mum was born in the Lake District, she moved to Leicester age four. My grandfather, who I never met, was a Leicester City uh, season ticket holder. So I was once going to Leicester and I bought a soccer annual and there was a picture of Peter Shilton, who you've never heard of, but he was a very famous Leicester goalkeeper. I was on a Leicester train. The ticket holder said the ticket collector said that's Filbert Street, which used to be their ground. So that's it. I was in my dear mum. Took me to virtually every London ground to see Leicester. She took me to West Ham, to Charlton, to Luton, everywhere you can imagine to see them. Uh, What are their prospects? Um, This season will be a glorious ninth finish, I would think. But we've had some good years. Come on, we. This is ridiculous, like I play. Uh, They won the FA Cup. and And one year, everybody else took the year off and they won the premiership. So those are great, great moments. And in fact, here's one. The year they won the premiership was the year my mother died. So I'm watching on television. It's the last game. Leicester City play Everton. The manager is a guy called Claudio Renieri. His One of his mates is Andrea Bocelli, the phenomenal Italian singer. He comes out to the Leicester Stadium and sings and Dorma. And that's a number I'd had done by the singing waiters that you might have heard of, who drop the plates and then sing. You'll 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 know it one day. At a restaurant in Blackheath for a ninetieth birthday. So I'd lost Mum about six months earlier. I'm watching it on the telly. They sing Ness and Dormer. Dear God, there wasn't a dryer in the house. I was on my own, but there wasn't a dryer in the house. Really. I'm sorry for the loss of your Thank your you. mother. On a more funny note, then,
0: have you listened to the impressions of you on the the Radio Four comedy
2: series, Dead Ringers? Yeah. <laughs> do you think they're accurate? I can't remember why, but we tried to get Rory Bremner once to do me. And, he, and I do, I've do. i met him a couple of times. I'm not going to pretend to it. And he had a listen and he said, there's nothing really in your I can't really get anything in your voice. And I, look, it's, it's, one of my sons is absolutely delighted now that his father's been. The other one, I don't think he really cares either one way or the other. Look, it, it, I'm going to be honest with you, OK? It is a bit of an accolade. In our business, it's far better to be talked about than not talked about. I hope he doesn't happen to be a parent of a kid here because I don't think it's the best impersonation I've ever heard. But it is a huge compliment that I'm included. Yes, yes.
3: So what advice would you give to current pupils at school who want to go into broadcast or print journalism?
2: Okay, well, you're lucky you're at a great school. Read as much material as you can, whether it's online. I mean, I wonder how many of pupils, current pupils have newspapers in their homes probably very few but if you can get one even if you're at the train station and there's a free evening standard or a metro read 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 as much as you can you don't realize how actually if you can't keep reading how stories are constructed it kind of drops into your brain so that's on on the broadcast side again i'm going to say consume as much journalism as much radio journalism as you can whether it's the BBC, which is a great organiser. I'm not here to, to dump on the BBC. They're phenomenal journalists on the BBC. I think we're a pretty good crew, most of us on LBC. Um, but the other thing is just just be ready. It's a very strange. It, it's not a linear business. It's the most extraordinary business in that you can actually have very little qualifications and suddenly find that you're with a great big show or you can put yourself through everything you can think of and all sorts of degrees and you can still fight. So it's a tremendous career. Anyone listening, reading this now, I I wouldn't say I just want to do print because I think you're narrowing. Or if you're doing print, it's got to be online as well. That's what I'm saying. So you know, I want to, I want to edit the Daily Mirror. You're gonna, you're gonna have your work cut out there. So be broad. But it is, it is also a job that keeps reinventing itself. Communications. People like telling us what have we been doing for the last 25 minutes. We've been telling stories. Right? People love telling stories. Now, whether you're writing the story down, you're doing it on a podcast. There's still, there will always be all the time. People want to talk. Will always be in work.
0: So we read that you are obviously a showbiz editor at the Sun. Yes, um, and interviewed Roger Moore. Yes. on the set of the 1983 James Bond film, yes. uh, Octopussy. <laughs> so, I mean, tell us about that. And is it true that you also acted as an extra in the
2: film? Yeah. Yeah. And if so, where can we see you? All the above is true, Your Honour. And I plead no mitigating circumstance. Yeah, it's all true. You have to know where to look. And they often do with the Bond movies, because we went out, I went out with a, a, a photographer in the sun and there was a team from the Daily Express and they needed, so they, they regularly sit you around. I was actually also sat around in a YouTube a kill but sadly that went on the editing for the edit floor so that made it um even my mother struggled to see me in uh octopussy so i can't really just it's the scene where bond arrives at the hotel and there are beautiful indian women throwing themselves in and out of swimming pools and stunning looking indian men waiting and drying them with towels and crying and then there's a there's a fat englishman sitting by the table but my god you have to know when to look the best story about uh the best story about roger i had to get this in you i tried and tried and tried and the the sun had paid a lot of money to send me there and i'd only just arrived on the sun and it was what they called the a foreign when you go on an overseas trip it's called you're foreign and it's your first one and you don't want to mess it up you really want it to work so i'm doing everything i can think of to get alongside roger moore and eventually i get him and it's the scene where roger moore's in his dinner shirt and he's just been in the back of a it's like a tuck tuck but it's not a tuck and he's been throwing uh rupees or whatever like that and everybody's been grabbing the money and they can't, can't and they shoot every scene about eight times and he sits down, and these children come pouring up with pens and want autographs. And then every now and again, and he reaches out, and one little boy passes him a piece of paper. So he writes Roger Moore. The same little boy hands the piece of the paper, turns it upside down, or the other way around, gives him to a sign again. So Roger Moore, with those incredible eyebrows, sort of looks at the boy, looks at me, raises the eyebrows, signs it, leans into me and says, apparently... Two of mine are worth one of Sean Connery's, which I thought was such such a good line. So all your research is true.
3: Thank you. Congratulations are being awarded on the Sony Speech Broadcaster of the Year in two thousand and nine. What quality do you think the judges of this award were particularly interested in?
2: That was brilliant. So I'm just working out. You were probably six when I last got an award, so it's all going well, isn't it? We're doing just fine here. I would think it was the different style that was probably bought. So it was look, he's a challenging person to work for, Rupert Murdoch. But if you get promoted quite quickly and you suddenly find yourself running a newsroom in New York or quite a junior, a senior job in Sydney, you get quite a quick sense of how to deliver stories and how to keep people's attention. Possibly people hadn't heard it like that on the radio. It was quite what they called it a listen. OK, it's just a radio. It was quite a different listen to what had come for. So I imagine 14 years ago it felt like a new experience. Thank you, Amrit. That's one. I'll t- that's one I'll take home this afternoon. <laughs> I think we can
0: probably both agree now that the Tory party is in a bit of a, a mess. And I think a lot of people are, have lost trust and faith in it. So I guess that kind of leads me on to think, who do you think will
2: win the next general election? Which party? What are your views on that? Alex, I don't think anyone will win the next general election. I think Sakir Keir Starmer will have the biggest number of seats. Currently, I don't see him getting over the line on his, air, on his own. I mean... We've all seen what six weeks is a long time in politics, let alone two two years and a bit. But currently, if we what day is it today? If we all went to the polls in a couple of days' time on Thursday. He would definitely have, absolutely, Conservatives would have a bloody nose. But I still think Sakir would either need the Lib Dems or possibly the Scots or whatever to actually form a government. And then I think you would probably see some cracks. What does that mean? Well, for me, it means extraordinary entertaining times because that makes people listen to the radio when, sadly, when, when the country's not doing well or it's got COVID or there's Ukraine just started, people listen to shows like mine. So that's how it would be happening now. But as I said, two years is a long time. And the one thing Conservatives would hold on to, the one thing, is that while they are 20-plus points... We are recording this, or uh, taping this, or oh, sorry, interviewing this, they're 20-plus points below. Man for man, Mr Sunak still scores higher than Sakir. So that's something Labour are going to have to do for. whatever reason, he doesn't seem to quite cut through as I sense the Labour Party. And I've met him more times than I can shake a stick at. He's a very, very decent bloke, but he doesn't quite perhaps have that dynamism possibly to lead the party to total victory.
3: Whilst you were at Eltham, did you do much in the way of sport or music or drama or art?
2: No, not music. I was sharing with Andrew. Did I tell you about the, the rugby report? I did tell you that. Um, so I played rugby. I think I got one appearance for the first and was absolutely shocking. I remember being, as I drove in, I saw those fields and the, you know, the pain and the injury and the, the misery came back. Never really did anything in cricket. Yeah, did a bit of drama. I'll tell you what I was very good at. I'm not going to lie. I was very good at. We had something, oh, sorry, We, you at school. Was it reading and debating society debating society, or, and the only thing I ever I – th- oh, I think I once got a try for my house, but every time there was a reading and debating or debating or whatever it was, my house would win. I would lead that to victory and I r- thoroughly enjoyed that. In fact, I might have even – this used to be where we are now, sorry to explain, this used to be the Sixth Form Common Room, but I think we might have had one here or I might have prepped for one here. It all happens in here. This is the scene of my only victory. Apart from the Sony when you were three, this is the scene of my victory. And then I would lead my house to victory, which of course is the best house in the school. What house do you go to, Alex? Livingston. Bad luck?
3: Livingston.
2: (laughs) Oh, right. That would be Carrie that I went to, that I was with. Why do you laugh?
3: Carrie is not the best right now.
2: Well, it would be if I did the debating society, I assure you. <laughs>
0: must be somewhat surreal coming back here after well, so many years. I know you say you've seen it, but to properly be back in feeling almost like a, a student again yeah. among us. Uh,
2: hopefully that's not condescending. And, and yes, I, I mean, how does it feel? I'm certainly looking forward to having a, a quick spin round. Um, I've been here to watch, as I think I said, my son's play some hockey, but way, way over some fields that I, the school didn't even own when uh, when I was coming here. I don't recognise a lot of it. Um, I wish someone would give me the code to the car park. That was a problem. I, I had to pick the lock, but I did that. I remember that skill from Eltham. And just getting my security pass, I probably answered more questions correctly, getting my security pass than I did in my entire school career. So I was quite pleased that that came out with the right name and phone number. So I'm going to call that as a hit, along with my debating skills. Does it feel quite emotional then? It might, candidly, at the moment-ish, but it has changed so dramatically. I mean, behind you now is the music block, which currently, it's pretty unrecognised. That super reception area, it, I can't remember what it was, but it certainly wasn't like that. I would think, as I walk around, there will be... Obviously, I've seen my boys play basketball down at the Great Centre. I'm sorry, I'm pointing behind the chapel. Is it Eric Little Centre? Uh, yeah, OK. But I would be surprised if there isn't something, and I do want to see if my initials are still carved in the desk, which I did with a... <laughs> I didn't really... They looked in shock and horror then, these two kids. Yeah,
1: I'm not surprised, Nick. You're not supposed to be scaring them.
2: Yeah, well, so I
0: captained the debating team this year. So we have MACE, um, English-speaking union, The debate that debating competition coming up on Thursday. And obviously, as I'm growing up, I'm still in the process of learning all of those skills, as I know everyone else around me is. And I think debating helps a lot with, as you've probably seen, with just being very f- confident, um, front with your views, forthright, um what you say. So I guess my, my question here is, what would you suggest to other avid debaters? What skills do you feel like you've
2: picked up from that? It kind of helps you a lot in your career. Be brief. Don't bang on like it's some ponderous geography lesson by someone just going on and on and on and on and on about the rivers of the Delta, whatever it might be. Show when you can. A deg- obviously, you've got to know your subject. Put it in language that everyone understands. Don't try and show off that you've swallowed a bloody dictionary. That won't help you win. Just because you know long words, people just think, "What a pain in the arse!" So what a pain that lad la- may be. And the other thing is, when you can, a bit of humour. And I remember once, it might have been in this very room. I, I, I don't know what we were debating. You know, f- fish fingers are too expensive, I've no idea what it was. And it doesn't actually matter. And the other bloke landed, not literally, but an absolute smacker punch right on my nose. Just absolutely nailed a point I'd made. And I thought, how am I going to recover from that? So I got up, and I used this line on the radio sometimes. So I looked at him, and I said, well, thank you very much indeed, Greaves, Mayhew, Stock, whatever your name is, but just because you're right, it doesn't make you a better person. Well, of course, everybody roared with laughter, that completely and utterly what the hell do i do now so when you can it only works if you get it right but obviously so you know your subject don't and you're not you're, you're a charming man so you won't don't come off as being pompous and when you can if you get a, a smile honey gets more than vinegar ever can an old editor told me that when you're interviewing someone so you can go in and i can be abusive to a politician which i do but sometimes a little so honey will get more than vinegar ever can
1: that's good to remember
2: well, thank you very much
0: for the interview um it's been a pleasure i've really enjoyed it
3: yeah, thank you for giving us a good insight into your experience at Elton College.
2: Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure, Amrit and Alex. There's just one thing I regret. You're not in Cary.
1: Well, thank you so much uh, to Nick Ferrari, um, who you can catch um, every morning on LBC, 7am to 10am, but also as well to Amrit and Alex. I mean, I think you handled those handbrake turns and questions Brilliantly. What a privilege um, to hear you actually speaking today and so articulate. So uh, do tune in for the next podcast as well and to find out more about other people who've been to Eltham College and um, a few more insights into the school and what it's like today to be a pupil there.